Chapter 6, Jesus as my Lord Messiah, the golden key of Psalm 110, verse 1. Probably the earliest Christian creedal statement was the simple yet profound proclamation, Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 11. Saying Jesus is Lord, Greek Kyrios, Jesus, was the New Testament Greek equivalent of saying Jesus is Yahweh. That's from F.F. F. Bruce in his book, Jesus, Lord and Savior. We are not to suppose that the apostles identified Christ with Jehovah. There were passages which made this impossible. For instance, Psalm 110, verse 1. That's from Charles Big in the International Critical Commentary on 1 Peter. In Paul, there is no clear statement revealing a trinity of persons in the one divine nature. That's from Ladue, Trinity Guide to the Trinity. These quotations at the head of this chapter point to the confusion which has overtaken the church. There is no trinity in Paul, says one commentator. It was impossible to identify Jesus with Yahweh, says another, but another contradicts him by claiming that Jesus is identified with Yahweh. So the question is, who is right? To confess Jesus as Lord in the first century set Christians apart both from Judaism and the Romans' worship of Caesar as Lord. Confessing Jesus as Lord, however, certainly did not mean that Christians had abandoned the unitary monotheistic creed fully endorsed by their founding hero Jesus. The New Testament is violated if one suggests that its writers proposed that two persons were both Yahweh. Paul over and over again makes the clearest distinction between God, by which he meant the Father, and Jesus, the Lord Messiah. God, for Paul, was the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Messiah. Romans 15 verse 6, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 and Ephesians 1 verse 3. Paul uses that precise phrase to convey his understanding of the difference between God and Jesus. He never wrote God the Son, nor once did he speak of God and God, nor did he use the phrase God from God as later creeds did. Paul knows of, quote, one God and Father over all, Ephesians 4 verse 6. This is a thoroughly Jewish definition of God. Luke in Acts reports Paul as expressing belief in the God of his Jewish heritage, Acts 24 verse 14. And that God was never triune. Ananias, who was dispatched by the risen Jesus to inform Paul of his commission, 
spoke for, quote, the God of our fathers. Acts 22, verse 14. Peter likewise spoke of, quote, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Co-equal, quote, gods cannot be said to be related as God of God or Father of God. Jesus speaks of, quote, my God, recognizing the Father as both his God and the God of Christians. John 20, verse 17. The Trinitarian idea throws the New Testament documents into confusion, importing into it the much later thinking of the church. Paul defines Jesus, as does the New Testament, as the Christ or Messiah. He refers to Jesus as, quote, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For example, in Romans 1, 4, chapter 5, 21, and 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Or, quote, Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Romans 6, 23, 8, 39, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Ephesians 3, 11, 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 12, and 2 Timothy 1, 2. Paul refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 1, 4, 5, 21, and 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Christ Jesus our Lord in Romans 6, 23, 8, 39, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Ephesians 3, 11, 1 Timothy 1, 2, 1, verse 12, and 2 Timothy 1, 2. Jesus is the unique Son of God, and God is beautifully described as, quote, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Ephesians 1, 17. Paul, Peter, John, and Jude each refer to the one God as God the Father, God even the Father, Ephesians 5 verse 20. Over and over again, the Lord Jesus Christ is distinguished from the Lord God, who is said to be his Father. Some 1317 references to God, or theos, are transliterations of Greek words reflect a modern Greek pronunciation of Greek rather than the traditional Erasmian pronunciation. So some 1317 references to God as Orthios in the New Testament refer to the Father of Jesus, and not one of them can be shown to mean the triune God. The Bible is silent about any triune God, since the word God throughout Scripture never describes a God in three persons. The triune God is rather obviously foreign to the Bible. The words three and God occur together in no Bible verse. And Yahweh, who speaks as, quote, I myself, provides an entirely adequate description of his single personality. Jeremiah 29 
verse 23, etc. Paul was a highly trained Pharisee before his sudden and spectacular conversion to belief in Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. He knew God as the God of his Jewish heritage and never wavered in that conviction. Spoke of the God of the Jews as the same God as the God of the Gentiles. Romans 3.29 Paul contradicted the Trinitarian idea of God with his claim that the God of both Testaments was the same one God and by declaring in Galatians 3 verse 20 that quote God is only one person. You'll find those exact words in the Amplified Version of Galatians 3.20. Today, churches assemble under the umbrella of belief that the true God is composed of three persons. The biblical creed has undergone an obvious revision. Instead of God being a single person, the Father of Jesus, he has become a composite being consisting of three persons, Jews and Muslims, since that the Unitarian creed of scripture and of Jesus himself has had to give way to a post-biblical redefinition of God. The foundations of theology have undergone a radical change. Jesus has been divorced from his own stated creed, yet he is claimed as the founder of churches assembling in the name of a creed not known to him. There are over 1300 references to God in the New Testament. The word for the one God is Orthios in the original Greek manuscripts, and one so designated is the Father, as is quite clear to all readers. The Father never means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is obvious from the immediate context of the references to God as the Father. God the Father simply confirms that God in the New Testament means the Father, and he is both the God and Father of his Son Jesus. These defining titles for God and Jesus are perfectly obvious to any reader and may be confirmed, for example, by looking at the introductory words of Paul's letters to the churches. Greetings are sent from God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings are sent from the Messiah Jesus. Greetings are never sent from the Holy Spirit because, as we shall see later, Paul did not think of the Holy Spirit as a third member of a triune God. For Paul and the other New Testament writers, the Spirit of God was not a different person from God himself, any more than the Spirit of Elijah in 2 Kings 2 verse 15 and Luke 1 17 meant a person other than Elijah. The Spirit of God was the operational presence and power of God or, after the ascension of Jesus, operating in the world in various ways. 
God and Jesus thus share a common spirit, but it would be to rush to a false conclusion to say that this means that Jesus is God. It would, without any proof, rule out the possibility that God can impart his spirit to specially selected human beings. Jesus being the supreme and unique example of a human being endowed with the spirit of his father. Most readers of the New Testament approach the biblical text with the foregone conclusion that the later creeds of Nicaea and Chalcedon were right in their assessment of the biblical data. They read the Bible with Nicene eyes and the translators of our English Bibles have helped them along in this process by some editorial capital letters which do not appear in the original Greek, forcing them to see the Holy Spirit as the uppercase Holy Spirit, a third person. Translations prejudice the reader against the original understanding of the Holy Spirit, lowercase, as the personal spirit of God, his influence and power in action by using masculine pronouns for the spirit. The Greek does not require this at all. The spirit may be legitimately thought of as, quote, it, rather than, quote, he. An example of this is found in the King James Version in Romans 8, verses 16 and 26, where we read, quote, the spirit itself. If translators render the pronouns as he, the later belief that God is three persons and not one is imposed on the text. Translation is, of course, the subtlest form of commentary. The translator or translators have the power to direct the reader's thinking beyond what the original Greek had meant. Helping, so to speak, the reader to read the New Testament as though its writers agreed with the later Christian creeds. To impose later creeds on the New Testament is an inadmissible way to deal with the documents preserving apostolic faith. It's an anachronism to talk of the Bible as though it reveals a tripersonal God. It's akin to asking what sort of software Paul had on his computer. Paul knew as little about a triune God as he did about computers. If Paul was aware of competing, quote, gods, he warned against them and insisted on the creed of the scriptures on which Jesus himself had built his own faith, as in Mark 12, 29. If one starts with belief in the triune God, a doctrine forged over a period of more than 300 years, marked by the creedal decisions of Nicaea, Constantinople and Chalcedon in the 4th and 5th centuries, one will find what one is looking for in some verses in the New Testament. But this is to examine the issue with a preconceived bias that the New Testament is properly represented by the later creeds. 
What if this is not the case? Do we need a Trinitarian, quote, solution to make sense of the biblical data? Or can we rest in the creed of Jesus himself, which was not Trinitarian? The latter solution would appear to be the only one consonant with the conviction that Jesus is the one who is authorized to tell us who God is. Only when Jesus is rejected as our rabbi and theological guide, is it possible to ascribe to him a creed he did not believe in. I propose that the Trinitarian theory is completely unnecessary for explaining the New Testament data about God and Jesus. Worse than that, since the Trinity is an alien doctrine imposed on the text and read back into it, it actually confuses the very Jewish theology of Jesus and the apostles. It diminishes the amazing achievement of the human Jesus. The Trinity complicates the Godhead by adding two persons to it, and at the same time, it blunts the fact that Jesus was a human being, not just an average human being, of course. He was certainly not, quote, just a man, if that means an ordinary man, not a, quote, mere man, whatever that's supposed to mean, but the uniquely begotten and sinless Son of God, resurrected from the dead, appointed as high priest to the human race, authorized in the future to raise and judge the dead. John 5, verse 21, 22, 25, and 27. And to rule the world in the coming kingdom. Acts 17, verse 31. High priests, according to the book of Hebrews, are, quote, chosen from among men. Hebrews 5, verse 1. They have to be fully human. The Jesus, who is believed to be God himself, does not fit that category. He is presented in the New Testament as the uniquely begotten or generated Son of the one God of Israel. The essential question to be answered is this. How are we to define that special and unique relationship of the Son of God to his Father? I propose that the Trinity, calling Jesus co-equal with God and part of the eternal Godhead, has pushed him far beyond any of the designations given him by the New Testament. And to make its case, Trinitarianism has to destroy the meaning of some key biblical words. Putting two or three billiard balls on one spot is an impossible task. Trying to put the second one on the same spot as the first displaces the first. They will not both fit. Claiming that Jesus is God, while holding, of course, that the Father is God, introduces a second God if language has any meaning. The term, quote, God in the Bible appears as a title. It becomes, in fact, virtually the proper name of God. Quote, God is our Father. The Jews protest. 
see John 8.41, and they mean that the person, God, is our Father. They learn this fact about the true God from one end of the Hebrew Bible to the other. They learn to cling to that one God after bitter historical disasters caused them to return to the Unitarian view of God they were supposed to present to the pagan world. Quote, do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? We read that in Malachi 2 verse 10. To say that, quote, Jesus is God means that there are now two persons who are God. This is not the strict monotheism of the Bible proclaimed by the prophets of Israel and adhered to by Jesus himself. Any duality or trinity in the Godhead complicates the cardinal proposition that God is, quote, one Lord, Yahweh, or the one Lord God, so designated as a single personal being by thousands of singular personal pronouns. Calling Jesus God immediately raises the question as to how he can be a real human being without being two different persons. The proposition, quote, the Father is God and Jesus is God, suggests to the mind that there are two gods. When theologians protest that the faith can accommodate two who are God by insisting that they are joined in one unity of essence, they are quite unconvincing. They have departed from the categories of thought provided by Scripture. Let them show us that the Bible ever proposes that God is one substance or essence, a united Godhead of two or more persons. Such a theory eliminates the very personal one God of Scripture who never presents himself as an essence or a what. The addition of Jesus to the Godhead raised the awful problem of a damaged monotheism. A distinguished professor of New Testament writing from the University of Jena, H. H. Vent, pointed out that the inclusion of Jesus as a member of the eternal Godhead undermined monotheism, though Christians claimed that it did not. I quote, the ancient church Christology is burdened by very serious difficulties. These are difficulties which are connected to its very core and center. That is to say, with the fundamental concept that the deity to be recognized in Jesus was a pre-existing personal being, the Logos, the eternal Son of God. Monotheism is damaged by this view of Christ. And monotheism is no sideline for the Christian view of God, but something fundamental and essential. No harm would be done to monotheism when the being incarnated in Jesus is viewed as personal, but not essentially deity, nor if it is seen as essentially deity, but impersonal. But monotheism is inevitably damaged when these two factors are combined. 
that is personality and essential deity if the logos which belongs to the essential being of god is a person and as such clearly distinguished from the person of god the father there arises a plurality in god and pure monotheism is dissolved further the ancient christology of the church makes the spiritual being of the historical jesus unclear and incomprehensible the combining of a personal logos belonging to god with a complete human being with a human spiritual existence means that the historical jesus contains within himself a duality which contradicts the idea of a spiritually united personality the incomprehensibility which pertains to god has nothing to do with the irrationality of the trinity that quotation was from hans hinrich wendt in his system der christlichen lehre none of these abstruse brain teasing problems arises if the pure jewish christian monotheism of jesus and his apostles is upheld as the core of christian faith in god but one has only to enter a contemporary christian bookstore to find out that the unitary monotheism of the shema in deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and of jesus has been rolled out of court for Christians. The NIV study Bible notes tell us that the Shema, quote, became a Jewish confession of faith recited daily by the pious. That's the NIV study notes on Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Schofield Reference Bible states that, quote, the Shema is meant to emphasize the monotheistic belief of judaism apparently then jesus who considered the shema to be the crowning proposition of true faith in god is disallowed as a christian teacher christianity as we know it seems to have moved away from and beyond jesus whom it claims as its founding hero this should be an issue of public concern, lest we fall under the criticism of Jesus himself, who complained in his day that religions fall for man-made doctrine in place of scriptural truth. Matthew 22, verse 29. It is dangerous to our spiritual health to render scripture invalid by imposing human tradition on it. The critical standard to which Jesus and the New Testament calls us is the standard set by Jesus' own gospel and words. Quote, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this faithless and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of the Father. Mark 8, verse 38. Psalm 110, a master key, two lords, but only one God. Luther referred to Psalm 110 as, quote, the true high main psalm of our beloved Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus used the key verse in Psalm 110.1 as the theme of a penetrating interchange with his opponents. He was able to silence all objectors. Matthew 22, verse 46. No confusion would have arisen if we had paid attention to the episode recorded by the gospel writers immediately following Jesus' encounter with the scribe in Mark 12, 28 to 34. Having replied to the Jewish inquirer by setting his seal on the unitary monotheism of his Jewish heritage, Jesus reversed the role he had played with the scribe and chose to address a question to his listeners. The gist of the question was, how is it that David, under inspiration, called the Messiah Lord? How can the Messiah be both the son of David and also his Lord? See Mark 12, verse 37. It is at this point that Trinitarianism displays an unusual carelessness with the facts. Recognizing the immense significance throughout the New Testament of Psalm 110, verse 1, it fails entirely to give us the proper definition of the two lords mentioned in that verse. It either neglects to inform us about the meaning of the second lord or completely misstates the facts about the Hebrew word there. Misrepresenting the word for my Lord in Psalm 110.1 is remarkable, since there is no doubt at all about the word Adoni, my Lord, lowercase l, which appears in that verse and which provides the key to the relationship of God to the Messiah. When Norman Geisler wrote the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, he thought he had found clear evidence for at least two elements of a Trinitarian God in Psalm 110.1. Quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Bible also recognizes a plurality of persons in God, wrote Geisler. Although the doctrine of the Trinity, he said, is not as explicit in the Old Testament as the New Testament, nonetheless, there are passages where members of the Godhead are distinguished. At times, they even speak to one another. See Psalm 110.1. That's from Norman L. Geisler, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. But the second lowercase lord in Psalm 110.1 is not deity at all. He is expressly not God. In a section, Jesus claimed to be God, Geisler firstly states that humans can be called Adonai. He refers to Genesis 18.12, where the Hebrew word is in fact not Adonai, but Adonai. He then misquotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Quote, the Lord Yahweh speaks to my Lord Adonai, but the second Lord of the Hebrew text is not Adonai. The title of deity 
but the human title Adonai. In Psalm 110.1, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit thou at my right hand. This passage, he says, is cited by the Christ to prove that he is Adonai, seated at the right hand of Yahweh. Matthew 22, verse 44. But Adonai, my master as a proper name, is used exclusively of the deity, either alone or in such phrases as Yahweh Adonai. Indeed, instead of the ineffable name Yahweh, the pious Jew read Adonai. It is clear then that in this lyric, Yahweh addresses the Christ as a different person and yet identical in the Godhead. That's from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1949. The learned professor's statement would be fine were it not for his misreporting of the key Hebrew word. It is not Adonai at all, but Adoni, a title which is never applicable to deity. He is right that Adonai is used exclusively of deity, but it is not the word used of the Messiah in this psalm. The Schofield Reference Bible on Psalm 110 verse 1 first notes the supreme importance of this psalm, measured by its very frequent quotation in the New Testament. I quote, The importance of the 110th psalm is attested by the remarkable prominence given to it in the New Testament. Schofield then asserts, quote, Psalm 110 verse 1 affirms the deity of Jesus, thus answering those who deny the full divine meaning of his New Testament title, Lord. Schofield's claim is extraordinary, since the text in fact presents the very opposite information. The second Lord of Psalm 110.1 here is Adoni, a word which in none of its 195 occurrences ever refers to deity. Adoni is the form of the word Lord, Adon, in the Hebrew Bible, which expressly tells us that the one so designated is not God, but a human superior, occasionally an angelic superior. Adoni is the, quote, profane title, that is, not the title of deity. How then can its appearance in this psalm affirm the, quote, deity of Jesus? It affirms, in fact, that however exalted his position, the Messiah is not deity. He is my Lord, lowercase l, Adoni, the king. He is the supremely exalted man. The following information will, I think, convince the reader that Bible commentary has committed itself in this matter of the Lordship of Jesus to some extraordinary misinformation, presumably copied from one, quote, authority to another without bothering to consult the Hebrew Bible. This issue has become something of a, quote, saga 
provoking intense disagreement over what is in fact a rather simple issue. More is at stake here than meets the eye, but a little investigation points to the vulnerable nature of, quote, orthodoxy, when it blithely tells us that both the Father and Jesus are to be recognized as equally and fully deity, but that this does not make two gods. At the popular level, many authorities simply do not read the Hebrew and they misstate the facts about the Hebrew word for the second Lord in Psalm 110.1. Charles Spurgeon mistranslates, Jehovah said to my Adonai. Spurgeon is convinced that, quote, though David was a firm believer in the unity of the Godhead, yet he spiritually discerns two persons. That's from Spurgeon's The Treasury of David. Matthew Henry's commentary defines my Lord as the Trinitarian eternal son. Catholic Answers maintains that God the Son is called Lord, with a capital L, by David. Nave's topical Bible uses Psalm 110 as proof of the, quote, divinity of Jesus. The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology refers to our verse as ascribing, quote, full deity to Jesus. The dictionary concedes, however, that Jesus, quote, essential oneness with God the Father and full divinity as second person of the Trinity has been widely rejected as Hellenistic embellishment of the earliest Christian belief. That's in Jesus Christ, Names and Titles, Evangelical Dictionary of the Bible. It's a matter of surprise that commentators of the caliber of Campbell Morgan report that Psalm 110.1 is to be read, quote, Jehovah said to Adonai, adding that, quote, both these titles are used often of God, as from his notes on the Psalms. Even more startling is the Bible Knowledge Commentary written by Dallas Seminary faculty. They present Jesus as asking the question in Matthew 22, verses 42 to 45, quote, if the Messiah was simply an earthly son of David, why did he ascribe deity to him? Jesus quoted from a Messianic Psalm, 110, verse 1, in which David referred to the Messiah as my Lord. Lord, says this quotation, translates the word Adonai, used only of God. That is in Genesis 18, 27, Job 28, verse 28. If David called the Son, capital Lord, he certainly must be more than a human son. That's from John Walford and Roy Zuck, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. This comment reflects an extraordinary desire to find in the text what is not there. The word Adonai, in all of its 449 occurrences, is indeed the divine Lord God. But the second Lord in the Hebrew of Psalm 110 verse 1 is not Adonai, but Adoni, 
which is specifically the designation of non-deity. So much for a failed Trinitarian proof text, repeated scores of times. So keen are commentators to think of the Messiah as God, that they copy uncritically from each other a very obvious misstatement about the indisputable second Lord of Psalm 110, one who in the biblical text is not Adonai, but Adoni. The Jehovah's Witnesses are braided by Ron Rhodes for their non-Trinitarian understanding of Jesus. He writes, quote, David's reference to my Lord, with capital L, Psalm 110.1, also points to the undiminished deity of the Messiah, since Lord, Hebrew word Adonai, was a title for deity. That's from reasoning from the scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses. Adonai was indeed the title of deity, but David, as recorded for us in scripture, wrote Adoni. So Rhodes's suggested apologetic question to the witnesses falls flat. He writes, quote, ask the Jehovah's Witnesses, did you know that the same word used for Lord Adonai in Psalm 110.1 of Jesus Christ is also used of the Father numerous times in Scripture, Exodus 23.17, Deuteronomy 10.17, and Joshua 3.11. But the text he references do not contain the form Adonai, the word found in Psalm 110.1. And the Father is never once addressed as Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase. The form Adon, Lord, is found as a title for both God and man. But the suffixes found respectively on Adoni and Adonai always distinguish non-deity persons from deity. Jesus is so addressed as Adoni, in this centrally important psalm. So one mistake from the commentators compounds another here. When the Reverend V.A. Spence Little prepared a substantial booklet on the deity of Christ, he devoted a chapter to, quote, the deity of Christ implied in the Old Testament. He then refers to the quote, striking passage in the opening verse of Psalm 110. Quote, the Lord Jehovah said to my Lord Adonai. He tells us that the use of this Lord Adonai is acknowledged both in the psalm and in many New Testament interpretations of it as a divine personage and on equality with eternal deity. That's from his book, The Deity of Christ. But Reverend Spence has not read the Hebrew. The second Lord is not Adonai at all, but rather Adoni, the title for someone who is expressly not deity. MacArthur Study Bible seems not to know the difference between divine and human titles. Dr. MacArthur asserts that when Jesus cited Psalm 110.1, referring it to himself as Messiah, 
the inescapable implication is that Jesus was declaring his deity. That's from the MacArthur Study Bible. A professor of biblical studies at the Master's College is likewise certain that Psalm 110 1 quote, records a conversation between two members of the Godhead. A literal translation of the first phrase is Yahweh said to my Adonai. End of quotation. This is then said to be proof of plurality in the Godhead. That's from William Varner, the Messiah, cited by Patrick Navas in his book, Divine Truth or Human Tradition. John MacArthur seems unimpressed by Jesus' insistence on the non-Trinitarian creed of Jesus. He notes that Jesus, quote, confirmed the practice of every pious Jew who recited the entire Shema, Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, and chapter 11, verses 13 to 21, every morning and evening. You find that in the MacArthur Study Bible. He goes on to imply a contradiction of the Shema by Jesus. Referring to Jesus' citation of Psalm 110, verse 1, MacArthur tells us that, quote, the second word for Lord is a different word, not Yahweh, that the Jews use as a title for God. End of quotation. But the second Lord is not Adonai, but Adoni, a title which never refers to God. Jesus believed with the whole of Scripture that God is a single divine person. The misstatement about the Hebrew word for the second Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1 is widespread and shocking as coming from scholars who normally read the Hebrew text accurately. J. Barton Payne, in his massive Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, Yahweh said to my Lord, implies the latter's deity. But the second Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1 is not Adonai. The Hebrew reads not Adonai, the title of deity, but Adoni, a title never used of deity. A giant terminological muddle has afflicted the system and all because of a failure to distinguish God from man. Jesus allowed for no possible doubt about that distinction when he grounded the Christian faith in the unitary monotheistic creed of Israel. Mark 12, 28 to 34. I know too that David Cooper was confident that the God of Israel was triune, and he then ventured this mistranslation of the Shema, the Lord our God's is the Lord a unity? That's from his book, The Messiah, His Redemptive Career. On page 67, he alleges wrongly that Jehovah is addressed as Adoni. It is in fact the angel who is not deity, but rather deity's representative who is addressed as Adoni and not Adonai in Judges 6.13. The angel is distinguished from God 
in verses 12 and 22. Getting the fact right. Some earlier authorities and many modern sources are much more careful with the data, although Dean Farrar in the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges did not verify the Hebrew of Psalm 110 verse 1. Quote, in the Hebrew it is Jehovah said to my Lord Adonai, end quote. He very helpfully includes the Septuagint reference to the begetting of the sun from the womb before the morning star did I beget you, pointing to the real origin of the Messiah as from the womb prior to the arrival of the kingdom at the dawn of the coming new age. Isaiah spoke also prophetically of the servant as having been formed from the womb. Isaiah 49 verse 5. The servant's origin is similar to Jeremiah's in his mother's womb. Quote, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Job likewise speaks of the origin of all human persons as coming into existence by formation in the womb. Quote, Did not he who made me in the womb make him, and the same one fashion us in the womb? Job 31 verse 15. Indeed, it was the Spirit of God which fashioned me. Job 33, verse 4. Christians, knowing that the suffering servant had been likewise formed in the womb, Isaiah 49, verse 5, could not possibly expect the Messiah to have any different place of origin. He would be a human person, though begotten as a direct result of God's intervention. A.F. Kirkpatrick, also writing in the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges and as Regis Professor of Hebrew, correctly removes the capital from the second Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1 and replaces it with my Lord, lowercase l, noting that the revised version of 1881, quote, rightly dropped the capital letter. The professor also points out that in Psalm 110 verse 5, the Lord Adonai is God, who in this different image is at the right hand of the Messiah as his support. This picture of God helping a human person is found also in Psalm 16 verse 8, 73 verse 23, Psalm 109 verse 31, and 121, verse 5. Kirkpatrick pointed out that my Lord Adoni in Psalm 110, 1, is the title of respect and reverence used in the Old Testament in addressing or speaking of a person of rank and dignity, especially a king. Genesis 23, 6. 1 Samuel 22, 12, and 1 Kings 1, as well as chapter 18 and verse 7, and frequently. The professor observes that the capital on the word Lord, 
the second Lord, in most translations is, I quote, of the nature of an interpretation, end of quote. This is a kind and understated way of telling us that it is, in fact, a manipulation of the text. The clarity and precision of the Hebrew text was marred by the, quote, curse of the capital. It is the policy of many translations to write capital L-O-R-D throughout the Old Testament when the Hebrew word behind it is Adonai, the title of deity, in all 449 times. Translators profess to write Lord with lowercase l in the case of Adonai, thus showing that the person so designated is not deity. However, consistency was abandoned in Psalm 110.1 under the pressure of orthodoxy. The same inconsistency made the King James Version put a capital on the Lord of Daniel 12 verse 8 and Judges 6.13 in the mistaken belief that this was the Son pre-existing as God. The revised version corrected the error by writing my Lord, lowercase l. This error about the second Lord in Psalm 110.1 gave rise to a mass of commentary alleging against the actual fact that the second Lord in Psalm 110.1 was Adonai, the Lord God. This, in turn, allowed commentators and readers to find evidence for two persons within the Godhead. The attempts to read later, quote, orthodoxy into the Hebrew Bible, and indeed the whole Bible, have been relentless. A surprising analysis of Psalm 110, verse 1. In a 1992 issue of Bibliotheca Sacra of Dallas Theological Seminary, Professor Herbert Bateman turned his attention to Psalm 110, verse 1, and noted that traditionally the psalm has been recognized as David's prophetic address to his messianic Lord, his divine Lord. By divine, of course, he meant the deity of the Messiah. However, Bateman, as a Trinitarian, feels the need to remove the reference to Jesus and assign David's oracle to, quote, an earthly lord, that is, an earthly king of his lifetime. Though Bateman concedes an application to Jesus, He's concerned about a primary reference to Jesus because from Ladoni, lowercase Lord, to my Lord, is never used elsewhere in the Old Testament as a divine reference. The Masoretic pointing distinguishes divine references, Adonai, from human references, Adoni. Furthermore, Bateman says, when my Lord Adoni, and capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, are used in the same sentence, 
as in Psalm 110.1, my Lord, lowercase, always refers to an earthly Lord. Thus the phrase to my Lord, says Bateman, Ladoni, apparently indicates that David was directing this oracle from Yahweh to a human Lord, not to the divine messianic Lord, nor to himself. Bateman then mentions that some think David was speaking to himself, but Bateman prefers a reference to Solomon on the basis that the Hebrew title is Adoni and cannot therefore be a divine Lord. Bateman could have and should have revised his Trinitarian Christology under the pressure of his correct observation about the word for Lord, lowercase l, and by recognizing that the New Testament has no reserve about the direct and only application of the psalm to the Messiah, Son of God, a view held by both Jews and early Christians. Some Jewish writers saw the second Lord of Psalm 110.1 as Abraham or Hezekiah or Melchizedek, thus demonstrating that no one imagined Adoni to be God. Jews have never had the slightest difficulty with this distinction between divine and human titles. Peter confirms Jesus' arrival at the position of supreme exaltation at the right hand of the Father in Acts 2, 34-36. He then tells us that Jesus is Lord in the sense prophetically prescribed by Psalm 110.1. Had this oracle, which governs New Testament Christology and acts as an umbrella over the doctrine of the Son in relation to the Father, been heeded, all of the squabbles and centuries-long debate over God could have been avoided. Bateman has rendered us a service by pointing to the facts about the meaning of the second Lord. At least he did not resort to the desperate evasion produced by other evangelicals, namely that the psalm tells us only about the human nature of Jesus without telling us about his other 100%. But neither David nor Peter ever imagined a 200% person, much less that God was more than one person, nor that the Messiah was to be God himself. The Hebrew Bible is, however, very much concerned in its careful choice of words with distinguishing God from man. Jews took with utmost seriousness their charge to be custodians of the oracles of God. Romans 3 verse 2. So confused has this issue of the Hebrew words in Psalm 110.1 become, and under the pressure of reassuring themselves that the Trinity must surely be in the Hebrew Bible, popular theological sources continue to misstate the facts and mislead their audiences about the identity of the Messiah in relation to the one God. Thus, the Lockman Foundation, in its New American Standard Bible, 
comments in the margin of Acts 2.36 and misforms us that Peter's use of Psalm 110.1 involves the Hebrew word Adonai as the second Lord. I note that the editors of the NASB agreed to remove the error in a new printing, but they did not supply the actual Hebrew word Adonai. A leading organization providing biblical information to the public replied to our question as follows. Your question about Psalm 110.1, they said, can be answered quite easily. In fact, this is an excellent text for supporting the plurality of members within the Godhead, as well as the distinctiveness of the person of the Messiah or Christ. Both the Psalmist David and our Lord Jesus Christ declare that the second Lord, Adonai in Hebrew, refers to a divine being who would become the Messiah. That was from the Christian Research Institute in correspondence with me. C.S. Lewis is then brought in to support the idea that Psalm 110.1 contains a second or hidden meaning concerned with the incarnation. The Christian Research Institute continued with this, quote, also in your letter, you forgot to accurately quote Psalm 110.1 when you failed to capitalize both lords. The Lord, or caps, Yahweh or Jehovah, says to my Lord, capital L, Adonai. David is writing the Psalm under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in a poetic form about the future reign of his Lord Christ as distinct from another member of the Godhead. That's from correspondence with the Christian Research Institute. But the facts are entirely wrong. It is they who wrongly capitalize the second Lord, supposing this to be Adonai, which it is not. The comment appears to be symptomatic of a very widespread inability of Bible readers to deal with the Unitarian creed of the Hebrew Bible and of Jesus, and a mesmerizing tendency to read into the text at the expense of fact a Trinitarian view of God. It is a fundamental error to suppose that these two lords in Psalm 110, one were both co-equally God. A mass of good scholars of the Hebrew Bible know the difference between Hebrew words for God and man. The Hebrew Bible, with its thousands of singular personal pronouns for God and its 7,000 or so references to Yahweh as a single person, excluded any possibility of plurality in the Godhead. The Shema had declared God to be only one Lord, and Jesus confirmed this central fact in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. It would be sheer contradiction to say that there are two Yahwehs when Jesus and the Shema say that there's only one. If there is one Yahweh and another Yahweh, and they speak to each other, it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that monotheism has been abandoned. Psalm 110 verse 1 does not overthrow that massive testimony to God as a single divine person. 
Yahweh speaks to David's lowercase lord in Psalm 110.1. You will notice the lowercase on Lord here. I'm following the Revised Version, the Revised Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard Version in writing lowercase lord and not uppercase lord. The reason is that behind this, my lord, lies the Hebrew word Adoni, pronounced in Hebrew Adoni. It's a form of the word for Lord, Adon, and in this form, Adoni, or my lowercase Lord, designates a human, occasionally an angelic superior, but it never once means God. I note that Strong's Concordance does not show you this important difference between Adoni, my Lord, and Adonai, the Lord God. It would be without precedent in the Hebrew Bible for the one God to speak to another who is equally the one God. That would be impossible. It would contradict the thousands of statements declaring God to be one person. It would contradict the New Testament monotheistic statements from Jesus and Paul that the Father is, quote, the only one who is truly God, John 17:3 and that God is one person, Galatians 3.20, and that, quote, to us there is one God, the Father, and there is no God but one, 1 Corinthians 8.4-6. The latter is Paul's strong confirmation of his Jewish monotheism from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The capitalization of the second Lord of Psalm 110.1 in many translations is thoroughly misleading. Translators tell us that their practice is to render the divine title Adonai as capital L, little o-r-d. The innocent reader will suppose then that Adonai, the Lord God, is a legitimate designation of the Messiah. However, since the word for the second Lord in Psalm 110.1 is not Adonai at all, but Adoni, a capital letter, breaks the translator's own rule. Our Bibles correctly do not capitalize Lord when they otherwise, in all other occasions, translate Adoni, my human Lord. In Psalm 110.1, a key verse for defining who Jesus is, the editorial convention for capital letters has been disregarded. The false impression then is given that God speaks to God. I note that the King James Bible broke its own rule of capitalization also in Daniel 12 verse 8. Readers were meant to suppose that the Lord, there capitalized, was the pre-existing Jesus. In fact, it was an angel addresses Adoni. Many modern translations have my Lord, lowercase l, not my Lord, uppercase l. This confusion over a critically important reference to Messiah is now well recognized by scholars. It's amazing that any confusion over the word Adoni versus Adonai could have been allowed to go into print. As Larry Hurtado says, it would have been quite clear 
that the Kyrios Lord, lowercase l here, was not used for God, but referred to a figure distinguishable from God. End of quotation. This has always been quite clear in the Hebrew text, where Adonai is never confused with Adonai. Professor Howard Marshall leaves the significance of Adonai in Psalm 110.1 somewhat less than clear. He says that the word is Adon, which can be used of human lords and masters. In fact, the word is Adonai, which only refers to non-deity superiors and never to God. Modern theologians are supposed to know about the original titles for deity and for the Messiah. How is it then in the 21st century that they repeatedly tell us that calling Jesus Lord proves that the New Testament writers thought that the Messiah was Yahweh, God? The one Lord Christ. The Greek of the New Testament speaks of God and Jesus as one thing. En, the neuter form of is, meaning one in Greek, is the word found in John 10 verse 30 about the oneness of God and his Son. When the masculine form of one, is, is used, the meaning is, quote, one person. This elementary point was noted in a discussion of the Trinity in a 19th century work by the Reverend Richard Treffrey. I and my father are one, N in the neuter, one substance, not is in the masculine, one person. Paul spoke in Romans 5.19 of the parallel between Adam and Jesus. For just as through the disobedience of one person, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one, Jesus that is, the many will be made righteous. Paul uses the same word one, is, to refer to Jesus. The meaning is, of course, one person, one single person, or a single person. The New Testament speaks of God as one person. A good example of this is found in Galatians 3, verse 20, quote, Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. The sense in both halves of the sentence is one person. Thus the amplified version catches the meaning God is only one person. That same phrase, God is one person, appears several times in the New Testament. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. Mark 12, verse 32. There's only one God. God is one, Is, And there's only one way of being accepted by him. He makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Romans 3, verse 30. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 5. In each case, God is one person. God is contrasted with Jesus, who is also one person. This pervasive fact of the New Testament is incompatible with the later doctrine that God is three persons. In Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh, or Jehovah, 
doesn't matter how you pronounce it, the yod Hey vav Hey is quite clear, the God of Israel, that is, addresses the Messiah as Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase l. Adoni signals the fact that it's not deity who is being so addressed. The custodians of the text were scrupulously careful to distinguish God from man. Adoni is the royal title. It refers to kings, as in my lord the king, which occurs some 57 times. It is thus the eminently appropriate title for the king Messiah Jesus. It may be applied to a husband or a master, but it never designates the supreme God. When God is addressed or referred to, there is another form of the same word Lord, and this is Adonai. The Masoretes, who faithfully pointed the Hebrew text with meticulous care, distinguished between a non-deity Lord with lowercase l and the deity who was the one Lord God. Jews sometimes speculated that the my Lord of Psalm 110.1 could have been Hezekiah or Abraham. It's clear then that at least they knew that the word there in the sacred text was not Adonai, the one Lord God. This Psalm 110.1, and in particular its first verse, is a marvellous testimony to the Messiah in David's collection. It is everywhere claimed as being of key significance for all the writers of the New Testament. It stands as a shield over the New Testament, beautifully defining the principal players in the divine drama, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and his Son, the Lord Christ. The latter is bidden to sit in the place of supreme eminence at the right hand of God pending the time when he will be dispatched to the earth to establish his kingdom by subduing God's enemies. Psalm 2, of equal Christological significance, deals with the same great events of the divine plan for our earth. There can be no doubt that we have in Psalm 110 verse 1 a major key to the understanding of God and the human Messiah Jesus. So many scholars have observed this rather obvious and telling fact that this verse from the Psalms controls all of the New Testament teaching and thinking about Jesus' status in relation to the one God. To investigate the biblical view of God and the position of Jesus in relation to God, it is now necessary to do more detailed work on that very special Old Testament verse which New Testament writers quote constantly. They chose this verse because it uniquely spoke of God and the Messiah and the relationship between them. It also revealed in a concise and compressed statement God's whole plan for the world centered in Christ. Quote, the Lord said to my Lord, lowercase l, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. Here are the two principal players in the divine drama unfolded in the pages of Scripture. First there is Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
the all caps Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh in the Hebrew, some 7,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. He utters a predictive oracle about David's Lord, lowercase l. Both Jews and Jesus were quite clear that this psalm referred to God and the Messiah. Jesus cleverly asked the Pharisees to explain how the Messiah could be both the descendant of David and also his Lord. The answer, of course, is that Messiah came into existence as a lineal and biological descendant of King David, as well as the Son of God. He was later, following his triumphant ministry, elevated by God to the position of David's Lord at the right hand of the one God of Israel. The Lordship of the Messiah was acquired by Jesus at the end of his ministry on earth. It was a Lordship which had nothing to do with an imagined lordship from eternity past, but one conferred on Jesus by God the Father. Peter in Acts showed how this very text had foretold God's plan to exalt the resurrected Jesus to the right hand of God. Here's how Peter unfolded God's ongoing plan based on the truth of Psalm 110 verse 1. Following the dramatic outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, Peter, quote, took his stand with the eleven and raised his voice, Acts 2.14, declaring the essence of the Christian drama to the Jewish crowd. As we listen to this sermon, we must pay careful attention to Peter's understanding of what had occurred. Did he believe that God had been raised to the right hand of God? Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Acts 2 verses 22 to 24. Peter then goes on to quote Psalm 16 verses 8 to 11 to confirm the resurrection of Jesus how God rescued him from the place of the dead, as to say, Hades. Peter repeated his point about the resurrection, quote, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Acts 2, verse 32. He then described the present status of Jesus at God's right hand, the status which the Son of God now resurrected and alive forever, achieved for the first time at his ascension. These are his vitally important words with reference to God and Jesus based on the inspired divine utterance recorded in Psalm 110 verse 1. Quote, 
Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, lowercase l, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 2 verses 33 to 36. The story is not complex. There is God and there is the man Jesus. God allowed the man Jesus to be killed. No Jew imagined that the immortal God could be killed. And God reversed this tragedy by resurrecting the man Jesus and subsequently exalting him to his right hand, thus making him Lord and Christ in the sense predicted by the oracle of Psalm 110 verse 1. Now imagine that Peter believed that both the Father and Jesus were equally God. Then God had allowed God to be crucified, and God had raised God to his right hand. Does this make the slightest sense? God sitting at the right hand of God would present the audience with a blatantly polytheistic system. God is not two, he is only one. The heritage of Israel would have been overthrown if the Messiah were now to be included as an eternal member of a plural Godhead. No Jew could possibly have been prepared for the notion that the Messiah was part of the Godhead. The Hebrew Bible had announced no such thing. It would have been a staggering innovation, requiring pages of explanation to say that the Messiah, Adoni, my Lord, lowercase l, was really the one God of Israel who was now mysteriously two. Psalm 110.1 provides us with an absolute testimony against any possibility of two who are both God. The Lord, Yahweh, the Father of Jesus, utters an oracle about David's Lord, lowercase l, the Messiah. For our investigation, it is critically important to underline the status of this one who has been crucified, resurrected, and raised to God's right hand. Who is this? Is he God the Son, second member of an eternal trinity? What is the rank of that second Lord of Psalm 110 verse 1? Is he God in the same sense as the Father is God, as Trinitarian doctrine claims? Peter states that the man Jesus has been exalted to a position of supremacy next to God, and that this is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1. It is as Lord, lowercase l, in the sense required by Psalm 110.1, that Jesus is now seated next to God. 
But what status is meant by, quote, my Lord of our psalm? Very occasionally, Adoni is an address to an angel. But in the vast majority of Adoni's 195 appearances in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, Adoni designates a human superior, husband, king, master, and so on. Adoni never ever means God. It is the royal title admirably appropriate for Jesus the Messiah and King of Israel. John 1 verse 49. Peter, on whose brilliant messianic rock confession the church is to be founded, Matthew 16 verses 16 to 18, informs us that as from the ascension of Jesus, there's a human Lord in the supreme position next to the one God, a man who had been brought back from death. That Lord, Adoni, cannot be God himself. To every reader, this would suggest a second God, an absolute impossibility within the Jewish monotheism of the New Testament. Jesus, according to Peter and Psalm 110 verse 1, his proof text, repeated some 23 times in the New Testament, is the human being at God's right hand. This is exactly in harmony with Paul's much later statement that, quote, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah, Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. It is exactly the same picture presented by Stephen in his dying moments. Quote, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, the human being, standing at the right hand of God. Acts 7 verse 56. Jesus evidently shared the same theological paradigm when he warned his persecutors that they would see, quote, the Son of Man, the human being, at the right hand of majesty, Matthew 26, verse 64. It has been very well said that, and I quote, Luke's understanding does not allow for any deification of Jesus. Luke moves wholly within the sphere of Old Testament thought. It is this which fashions Luke's understanding at this point, and, more especially, the ideas suggested by Psalm 110.1. This does not mean that Jesus becomes God or that he is given a divine status by Luke. The psalmist calls both God and King Lord, but he does not give equality to the two. Luke sees Jesus as wholly subordinate to the Father given a share in the Father's authority, but one which is derived from the Father. He is still the instrument of his Father and is still called his servant. Acts 3, verse 26, and Acts 4, verse 30. That's from Eric Franklin's book, Christ the Lord. The Jewish monotheism of Jesus' own creed is beautifully preserved in all these passages, 
it would be a major alteration of the text to say that a, quote, God-man, or, quote, God, is now at God's right hand. Psalm 110, verse 1, blocks that possibility, rules it out of court. The one at God's right hand is precisely defined as the human Lord Jesus, the first man ever to be brought back permanently to life by resurrection. We might even say that, quote, there is an immortal Jew now at the right hand of the one God. Vowels and consonants. It is sometimes objected that the word Adoni, my human Lord, lowercase l, differs only from the word Adonai, meaning the Lord God, in the matter of vowel points, which were not originally written in the Hebrew manuscripts. The vowel points, it's true, were added much later. They were based on the ancient tradition reflecting synagogue reading of the sacred text. But there's no hint anywhere that the vowel points were added wrongly in Psalm 110 verse 1. The Jews were almost fanatically careful in what they regarded as the sacred task of copying the scriptural text. They knew generation after generation how the text was read in the synagogues and finally that ancient reading was permanently fixed by the addition of the vowel points from around the 7th century AD. There's no evidence anywhere of any problem with the vowel points in the Hebrew text of Psalm 110 verse 1. And there is another powerful line of evidence which confirms that the Old Testament never imagined that second Lord of Psalm 110 verse 1, seated at God's right hand, to be God himself making two gods. This line of reasoning is slightly more technical, involving reference to the Hebrew and to the translation of the Hebrew into Greek, the translation known as the Septuagint, quoted by both non-Christian Jews and New Testament writers. The evidence will show that Psalm 110, verse 1, as originally written and preserved accurately in the Hebrew manuscripts, did indeed distinguish the Messiah as the non-deity Lord. Yahweh in that verse, as all know, means the Father, the one God. Adoni, by contrast, the second Lord in our verse, means my Lord, lowercase l. Our point is confirmed when we look at the Greek version of the Old Testament current in the time of Jesus and cited by New Testament writers. When we examine the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Bible, we discover that when Jews in B.C. times translated their Hebrew Bible into Greek, they understood the Hebrew word for my Lord, lowercase l, even before vowel points were added to the written text to be Adoni, which title is never used for God. The New Testament, which I take to be inspired scripture, reflects the same fact. The Greek is Kyrios Mu, my Lord, lowercase l, which is the proper translation of the Hebrew Adoni. No argument can be mounted, therefore, to doubt 
that the Hebrew text always reads Ladoni, meaning to my Lord. The article in Smith's Bible Dictionary on Son of God claims that Psalm 110 verse 1 provides a convincing proof of Christ's Godhead. A later editor of that Bible Dictionary is rightly amazed at this conclusion. In a footnote he writes, In ascribing to St. Peter the remarkable proposition that God has made Jesus Jehovah, the writer of this article appears to have overlooked the fact that Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d, refers to my Lord, Psalm 110.1, where the Hebrew correspondent is not Jehovah, but Adon, the common word for Lord or Master. Standard Authorities on the Hebrew Bible Psalm 110 verse 1 in the Greek of the Septuagint and New Testament simply confirms the very elementary fact that our Hebrew text is correct in defining the Messiah as Adonai. All of this proves that later creeds which proclaimed that Jesus was God, second member of a trinity, go beyond anything taught by scripture. There should be no need to have to argue that the Hebrew Masoretic text is correct in Psalm 110 verse 1. There's not a shred of evidence of corruption of the text here. Moreover, the Greek translation of the Hebrew made in BC times merely corroborates, as we shall see, the fact that the Hebrew word Adoni in Psalm 110.1 is perfectly genuine. Confirmation of the very important definition of my Lord, lowercase l, wrongly given a capital L in many translations to give the impression that Lord means God here, is supplied by the following standard authorities on the Hebrew Bible. The vital distinction between God and man is fully documented as follows. Quote, Adonai and Adoni are variations of Masoretic pointing to distinguish divine reference from human. Adonai is referred to God, but Adoni to human superiors. Adonai is referred to God, but Adoni to human superiors. Adoni, a reference to men, my Lord, my Master, see Psalm 110.1, and Adonai, a reference to God, or Lord with a capital L. That's from the article on Lord in the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew and English Lexicon of the Old Testament. The form Adoni, my Lord, a royal title, 1 Samuel 29, verse 8, is to be carefully distinguished from the divine title Adonai, my Lord, with capital L, used of Yahweh. Adonai, the special plural form, the divine title, distinguishing it from Adonai with a short vowel, my lords. 
That's from the article on Lord in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Adonai with a short vowel is the rare plural of Adoni and appears as a title for angels in Genesis 9 verse 2. Uncertainty as to the pointing as a divine or human title is very rare, as to say Genesis 19 verse 18. Lord in the Old Testament is used to translate Adonai when applied to the divine being. The Hebrew word has a suffix with special pointing, presumably for the sake of distinction. Sometimes it's uncertain whether it's a divine or human appellative. The Masoretic text sometimes decides this by a note distinguishing between the word when so-called holy or only, quote, excellent. Sometimes by a variation in the vowel pointing, Adoni or Adonai, short vowel, plural form, and Adonai with long vowel. That's from Hastings, a dictionary of the Bible. Hebrew Adonai exclusively denotes the God of Israel, it is attested about 450 times in the Old Testament. Adoni is addressed to human beings. Genesis 44 verse 7, Numbers 32 verse 25, and 2 Kings 2 verse 19, etc. We have to assume that the word Adonai received its special form to distinguish it from the secular use of Adon, as to say Adoni. The reason why God is addressed as Adonai, the long vowel, instead of the normal Adon or Adoni or Adonai with a short vowel may have been to distinguish Yahweh from other gods and from human lords. That's from the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible. Another quotation, the extension of the A on Adonai, the Lord God, may be traced to the concern of the Masoretes to mark the word as sacred by a small outward sign. That's from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. The form, to my Lord, lowercase l, ladoni, in Hebrew, is never used in the Old Testament as a divine reference. The generally accepted fact is that the Masoretic pointing distinguishes divine references, Adonai, from human references, Adoni. That's from George Wigram's The Englishman's Hebrew and Chaldee Concordance of the Old Testament. Somebody wrote to me, I agree with what you say about Psalm 110, verse 1, Adoni. And the Septuagint is translating correctly the use of the psalm in the New Testament does not identify Jesus as Adonai, the Lord God. That's from a letter from Professor Howard Marshall in 1998. Psalm 110.1 in the Septuagint and the New Testament scripture. If we now examine how the Greek Septuagint deals with the Hebrew Ladoni, to my Lord, 
we simply confirm the accuracy of the standard Hebrew vowel pointing of Psalm 110 verse 1 found in all Hebrew manuscripts. The Greek Septuagint enables us to see how the Hebrew text was being read several centuries before Christ as well as during his time. There should be no need to confirm the Hebrew from the Greek version of the Old Testament. No one has found any trace of a corrupted text in the Hebrew of Psalm 110 verse 1. The following merely shows how completely unproblematic is the designation of the Messiah, not as God himself, but as, quote, my human Lord, lowercase l. When Jews translated the Hebrew text into Greek from the 3rd century BC, it is perfectly clear that they were reading Adoni as the second Lord of Psalm 110, verse 1. They rendered my Lord, lowercase l, as Kyrios Mu, literally the Lord of me. Other examples of Ladoni, to my Lord, in the Hebrew Bible are listed below. The Greek consistently reads the Hebrew Adoni as my Lord, lowercase l. Here are the examples. Genesis 24, verse 36. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master. Hebrew word Ladoni and the Greek Tokiriomu. Another example. Genesis 24, verse 54. Send me away to my master, Hebrew Ladoni, the Greek Proston Kirion Mu. Another example, Genesis 24, verse 56. Send me away that I may go to my master, Hebrew Ladoni, and the Greek Proston Kirion Mu. Further example, Genesis 32, verse 4, in the Hebrew, verse 5. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Hebrew Ladoni, Greek Tokiriomu. Number 5, Genesis 32, verse 5. In the Hebrew, it's verse 6. I have sent to tell to my Lord, Hebrew Ladoni, Greek Tokiriomu, that I might find favor in your sight. Another example, Genesis 32. Verse 18, Hebrew verse 19. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. Hebrew Ladoni, Greek Tokiriomu. Genesis 44 verse 9. We will be servants to my Lord. Hebrew Ladoni, the Greek Tokiriomun. Another example. Genesis 44:16. What can we say to my Lord? Hebrew Ladoni, to Kirio. We are slaves to my Lord. Ladoni, to Kirio Imon. Another example, Genesis 44:33. Let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. Hebrew Ladoni, the Greek, to Kirio. Another example, 1 Samuel 24, verse 6. The Hebrew is verse 7. Far be it from me because of the Lord, or caps, Yahweh, 
that I should do this thing to my Lord, lowercase l, Ladoni Tokiriomu, the Lord's anointed. David here calling Saul the Lord's Messiah. Compare Luke 2.26. This text establishes the equivalence of Adoni and Messiah. First Samuel 25 verse 27. Let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, Hebrew Ladoni, Greek Tokiriomu, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. First Samuel 25 verse 28. The Lord, Yahweh, will certainly make for my Lord Ladoni Tokiriomu an enduring house because my Lord Adoni is fighting the battles of the Lord, Yahweh. First Samuel 25 verse 30. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good, and there the Hebrew is Ladoni and the Greek Tokiriomu. First Samuel 25 verse 31. This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, Hebrew Ladoni, Greek Tokiriomu. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, Ladoni, and the Greek Tokiriomu, then remember your maidservant. Another example, 2 Samuel 4 verse 8. Thus the Lord has given vengeance to my Lord, the King, Ladoni, Tokirio Vasili. Another example, 2 Samuel 19, verse 28. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my Lord, the King. The Hebrew, Ladoni Hamelech, the Greek, Tokirio Imon, Tovasili. This establishes Adoni as the royal title. 1 Kings 1 verse 2. Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, that she may provide warmth for my lord the king. Ladoni Hamelech, in the Greek, Okiriosimon o Vasilefs. 1 Kings 8.13 Has it not been told to my master, Ladoni, in the Greek, Tokirio Mu. 1 Kings 20, verse 9, Tell to my Lord the King, the Hebrew, Ladoni, and the Greek, Tokirio Imon. Another example, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 3, Are they not all servants to my Lord, Ladoni, in the Hebrew, Tokirio Mu, in the Greek? Finally, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, lowercase l, Ladoni, in the Hebrew, and the Greek, Tokiriomu. As you see then, there is not a shadow of doubt that the Hebrew of Psalm 110, verse 1, designates the Messiah not as deity, Adonai, but as a human superior, Adoni. The evidence for the Hebrew word Adoni is established long before the pointing added later by the Masoretes. There's no mistake in the Hebrew text as pointed by the Masoretes. Here are the occurrences of and my Lord. 
Once again, the Hebrew vadoni is properly rendered into Greek. Genesis 18, verse 12. Also, my Lord being old, vadoni in the Greek, okiriosmu. Numbers 36, verse 2. And my Lord, vadoni in the Greek, tokirioimon, was commanded by the Lord, Yahweh. 2 Samuel 11, verse 11. And my Lord, Joab, vadoni in the Hebrew, okiriosmu, in the Greek. 2 Samuel 14, verse 20, And my Lord is wise, vadoni, in the Greek, okiriosmu. 2 Samuel 19, verse 27, the Hebrew is verse 28, And my Lord, vadoni, in the Greek, okiriosmu. The king is like the angel of God. 2 Samuel 24, verse 3, and my Lord, Vadoni, or Kiriosmu, the king, why does he still delight in this thing? Further samples are provided by, quote, against my Lord, Badoni, and from my Lord, Meadoni. For Samuel 24, verse 10, Hebrews, verse 11, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, Badoni, in the Greek, epikirionmu. 2 Samuel 18.28 The men who lifted their hands against my Lord, Badoni Hamelech, and the Greek has entokiriomu, the king. Genesis 47, verse 18 We will not hide from my Lord, me Adoni, in the Greek, apo, to kiriu imon, that our money is all spent. Additional evidence of the very ancient distinction between Adoni and Adonai is provided by the fact that when the Hebrew reads Ladonai to the Lord God, the equivalent Greek is not Kiriosmu, but simply Kyrios to the Lord. This again confirms how precise the Masoretes were with the divine human distinction signified by Adonai and Adoni. Here are the examples of to the Lord God, as distinct from to the Lord human, Ladoni. Genesis 18, 30 and 32. Let not the Lord be angry, Ladonai, in the Greek, Kyrie. Psalm 22, verse 30, It will be told of the Lord, Ladonai, in the Greek, Tokirio. Psalm 130, verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord, Ladonai, in the Greek, Epiton Kyrion. Isaiah 22, verse 5, to the Lord of hosts, Ladonai Yahweh, in the Greek, Parakiriu. Isaiah 28, verse 2, The Lord has a mighty and strong one, Ladonai, in the Greek, Kiriu. Jeremiah 46, verse 10, The day of the Lord God of hosts 
Ladonai Yahweh Kivio To Theo in the Greek. Jeremiah 46 verse 10 For the Lord Yahweh of hosts Ladonai Yahweh in the Greek To Kirio. Jeremiah 50 verse 25 The work of the Lord God of hosts That's the Hebrew Ladonai Yahweh and the Greek To Kirio. Daniel 9 verse 9 To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. In the Hebrew, Ladonai, in the Greek, Tokirio. Malachi 1.14 Sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Ladonai, in the Greek, Tokirio. Based on Psalm 110 verse 1, the key to his identity, Jesus defined his position in relation to the one God, Matthew 22, verse 44. Jesus confirmed the title, which most beautifully describes who he is, Lord Messiah, Son of David. Paul habitually thought of Jesus as lowercase Lord, or the Lord Jesus Christ, or even the Lord Christ. Paul recognized Jesus not only as the unique, promised Messiah of God, but as a skilled theologian. Professor David Flusser, in his book, Jesus, notes, quote, when Jesus' sayings are examined against the background of contemporaneous Jewish learning, it is easy to observe that Jesus was far from uneducated. He was perfectly at home both in Holy Scripture and in oral tradition. And he knew how to apply this scholarly heritage. Moreover, Jesus' Jewish education was incomparably superior to that of St. Paul. External corroboration of Jesus' Jewish scholarship is provided by the fact that although he was not an approved scribe, some were accustomed to address him as, quote, Rabbi, my teacher or master. Those numbered among the inner circle of his followers and those who came to him in need addressed him as Lord. Apparently, this is the title that he preferred. This we know, again, thanks to the report of Luke. Quote, how can one say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord God said to my Lord, lowercase l, Ladoni, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can he be David's son? Luke 20 verses 41 to 44 and parallel passages. The title should not be confused as a sign of his deity, i.e. Adonai, but an indication of his high self-awareness, as from David Fluss's book entitled Jesus. Jesus did not approve of the pleasure so many Pharisees took in being addressed as rabbi. Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. 
Call no man on earth father or Abba, for there is but one person who is your father in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for you have but one leader, the Christ. Matthew 23, verses 8 to 10. God is one person. Christ is another person. God is one Lord, not two or three. Calling the Father and Jesus equally God makes more than one God. A tragic development. W. R. Matthews, in his book, The Problem of Christ in the 20th Century, reminds us of the conflict engendered by the loss of pure monotheism. I quote, Christianity inherited from the Jews the strict monotheism which it was the glory of the prophets to have established, and Paul believed the prophets, and so did Jesus, of course, and the church never intentionally compromised that primary affirmation. How then are we to think of the divine Son as rightly to be worshipped and yet to preserve the unity of the Godhead? As we know, the solution, if that is the right word, was found in the end in the mystery of the Trinity. The issues involved were vital to Christianity and the decisions of the great councils have been a norm for the thought and devotion of the whole church. Nevertheless, they had tragic consequences. They marked the beginning of persecution by Christians of their fellow believers. That is from The Problem of Christ in the 20th Century by W. R. Matthews. How very true that is, that the Trinity marked the beginning of persecution by Christians of their fellow believers. The climax of such brutality is seen in the murder in 1553 of Michael Servetus by John Calvin. For an instructive and moving account of this dramatically important episode, we thoroughly recommend the book by Lawrence and Nancy Goldstone called Out of the Flames, The Remarkable Story of a Fearless Scholar, a Fatal Heresy, and one of the rarest books in the world. I quote again from Matthew's book, The Problem of Christ in the 20th Century. Now was heard... For the first time, the word anathema pronounced by fathers in God on members of the flock of Christ. Political motives and even personal rivalries crept into the discussion and the deepest mysteries of the faith, and at the end the church was left with a series of definitions which were intended as a means of exclusion from the family of God. The original creed of the church was the simple formula, Jesus is Lord. With this watchword, the church achieved the first and decisive expansion of Christianity into the pagan world. In my opinion, says Dean Matthews, that earliest creed should have remained the sole doctrinal test for membership and the greatest misfortune which followed from the Christological disputes was the substitution of the criterion of acceptance of a set of theological propositions 
by which to judge a genuine Christian from that which Jesus laid down. Quote, by their fruits you shall know them, the words of Jesus. The development of theology involved the entrance of philosophy into the discussion. That whole quotation is from Dean Matthews, The Problem of Christ in the 20th Century. Such a dramatic downturn in the faith prompted this from Albert Nolan in his book Jesus Before Christianity. Many millions throughout the ages have venerated the name of Jesus, but few have understood him and fewer still have tried to put into practice what he wanted to see done. His words have been twisted and turned to mean everything, anything, and nothing. His name has been used and abused to justify crimes, to frighten children, and to inspire men and women to heroic foolishness. Jesus has been more frequently honored and worshipped for what he did not mean than for what he did mean. The supreme irony is that some of the things he opposed most strongly in the world of his time were resurrected, preached, and spread more widely throughout the world in his name. That's from Albert Nolan's book, Jesus Before Christianity. The shameful violence which overtook Christianity when it imagined that doctrine could be enforced by physical punishment is a sign of a troubling development. The root of the difficulty is traceable to the loss of Jesus' creed. Brian Holt makes our point in Jesus, God or the Son of God. He refers to Mark 12, verses 32 to 34. Does this sound like the scribe thought Jesus was the God we were to worship? He spoke of Jehovah as someone other than Jesus. This man had a viewpoint that was certainly not Trinitarian. Jesus strengthened and confirmed it. That's from Brian Holt's book, Jesus, God or the Son of God. The struggle against the messianic Christology of Psalm 110 verse 1. Richard Balcom recognizes, as every commentator must, that Psalm 110 verse 1 is a major key to the identity of Jesus. Having noted that Judaism's monotheism in the time of Jesus never blurred or bridged, quote, the line of absolute distinction between God and all other reality, Barkham observes that, quote, early Christian theology proceeded primarily by exegesis of the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm 110.1 is the Old Testament text to which the New Testament most often alludes. 21 quotations or allusions scattered across most of the New Testament writings. He makes no comment about the meaning of Adonai in the Hebrew text. One would expect an analysis of this critically important title, Lord, with lowercase l, for Jesus. He does not observe that Adonai is a title which does not speak of deity, but of human superiority. In this case, the supreme exaltation of Jesus. 
Barkham tells us that early Christians read the psalm, quote, as placing Jesus on the divine throne itself, exercising God's own rule over all things, end of quotation. However, this fact does not make Jesus God himself. He describes him as the uniquely elevated human superior, God's son, placed at the right hand of the one God. The deity of Jesus is certainly not proved by the exclusively human title given to him in Psalm 110, verse 1. Yet this category error is committed over and over again in standard works. A treasury of good information is found in the dictionary of the later New Testament and its developments. But the desire to find there the deity of Jesus pushes its authors to make fundamental mistakes about who Jesus is. The crucial importance for the entire New Testament of Psalm 110 verse 1 is first fully recognized. God seats Jesus at God's right hand. Hebrews' extensive use of this image of session shows the importance of Psalm 110 verse 1 for this author. As for the New Testament, reflection on Christ's status generally. He is exalted above the angels to the extent that a son is greater than servants, as in Hebrews 1, 4-7 and verse 9. That's from Ralph Martin and Peter David's Dictionary of the Later New Testament and its Developments. If only the writers of learned articles about Jesus had paid attention to the meaning of my Lord, lowercase l, in Psalm 110.1, this would have prevented the repetition of the blunder which seems to occur over and over again. Lord represents the attribution of the divine title Kyrios to the exalted Jesus says one author. The resurrection undeniably revealed Jesus' true identity as the divine Lord, the Kyrios, as in Acts 2.36. That's also from Ralph Martin and Peter David's book, Dictionary of the Later New Testament and its Developments. But Acts 2.36, quoting Psalm 110.1, defines the Lordship attained by Jesus as not that of deity. He is the Adoni of Psalm 110.1, a Hebrew form which expressly distinguishes a human from deity. Far from adding Jesus to the Godhead, Acts deliberately quotes Psalm 110.1 to show that Jesus is not God, but God's Messiah. The same stretching of the evidence occurs when it is stated, I quote, Acts explicitly substitutes Jesus for Yahweh in several Old Testament quotations. Psalm 110.1 and Acts 2.34. The divine title, Lord, functions to identify Jesus as participating in Yahweh's divinity. That's from the same dictionary of later New Testament and its developments. But Jesus is identified not with Yahweh in Psalm 
but with the one addressed by David as my Lord, lowercase l, Adoni, which every reader of the Hebrew Bible knows is not the divine, but the human Lord. It is that status as Adoni which Jesus has achieved. Peter makes that tremendous announcement as the climax to his sermon to the house of Israel. Acts 2, verses 34 to 36. The truth is that God exalted Jesus to his right hand and conferred on him as the supremely exalted human being the exercise of God's own lordship. Jesus has given divine prerogatives acting for Yahweh, doing what Yahweh does because God has granted that authority to him. But this does not mean that Jesus is God. What drives the New Testament drama is the amazing privilege bestowed by God on the human Messiah, who has now become Lord of the human race according to God's foreordained plan. Commentators seem bent on making Acts fit the mold of much later views of Jesus. I quote, in using Kyrios of both Yahweh and Jesus in his writings, Luke continues the sense of the title already being used in the early Christian community, which in some sense regarded Jesus as on a level with Yahweh. That's from Joseph Fitzmaier, the Gospel according to Luke. Yes, but in what sense? God has given Jesus divine functions, but the person at the right hand of majesty is still Adoni and not Adonai, that is man and not God. So keen are theologians to redefine the creed of Israel and of Jesus that they try to persuade us that Paul has not added Jesus to the Shema, but included him in it. What does that mean? If the Son is included in the Shema by Paul, the implication is that the Shema has been expanded. If Jesus is included in it, he is surely added to it. This is contrary to the express words of Jesus, who never claimed to be Yahweh. Professor Barkham says, Paul exhibits the typically strong Jewish monotheistic self-consciousness. He distinguishes the one God to whom alone allegiance is due from all pagan gods who are no gods. He draws on classic Jewish ways of formulating monotheistic faith, and he reformulates them to express a Christological monotheism which by no means abandons but maintains precisely the ways Judaism distinguished God from all reality, and he uses these to include Jesus in the unique divine identity. He maintains monotheism not by adding Jesus to, but by including Jesus in his Jewish understanding of the divine uniqueness. That's from Baruchum's God crucified. If the Shema originally speaks of one single person as God, and if Paul later includes Jesus in the Shema, 
Paul has indeed added to the Shema and altered it, which is an impossibility. Jesus is the exalted human being. The title, my Lord, with lowercase l, for the Messiah Jesus, is a constant indicator of who Jesus is in relation to God. From the very start, our Lord, that title, and my Lord, that title, reflect the messianic titles which tell us who Jesus really is. Elizabeth reflects the, quote, my Lord of Psalm 110.1 when she rejoices that, quote, the mother of my Lord has visited her, Luke 1.43. Not the mother of God, as later taught by Roman Catholicism. My Lord is the title of Israel's king. Jews had referred to David as, quote, our Lord David or my Lord David. Luke reports that it was the Lord Messiah who was born in Bethlehem, Luke 2.11. And Mary Magdalene bewails the loss of her Lord, lowercase l, Lord. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him, John 20, verse 13. The blind men who received their sight were blessed for their recognition of who Jesus was. They addressed him as, quote, Lord, Son of David, Matthew 15, verse 22, and Matthew 20, verse 30. When Paul says that there is, quote, one Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, compare Ephesians 4, 5, he is not altering the creed of Israel to include two who are God. He is echoing the central Christian conviction of Peter and all the apostles that God, quote, has made this Jesus Lord and Christ, Acts 2, 36. The ancient cry, Maranatha, our Lord come, 1 Corinthians 16.22, preserves the earliest Aramaic prayer of the church, just like Abba, Father, just like, quote, Abba, Father, Jesus' customary address to the one God, his Father, so our Lord come, points to the essential and original meaning of Lord as the appropriate title for Jesus. But it is not Lord equals Yahweh. The divine title does not and cannot appear with a personal possessive pronoun. No one in the Old Testament says our Yahweh or my Yahweh. Therefore, the address to Jesus, Maranatha, our Lord come, simply drives home the basic New Testament teaching and conviction that Jesus is our Lord the Messiah, certainly not the Lord God himself. David, the king of Israel, has been addressed as our Lord King David, 1 Kings 1, verses 43 and 47. But no one confused him with God. There's an ancient tradition of referring to a superior, particularly the king, as our Lord, and my Lord, my Lord, your father, David, Second Chronicles 2, verse 14, our Lord David, 1 Kings 1, 11. The Messiah is your Lord in the prophecy of Psalm 45, verse 11. 
The king of Israel is, quote, our Lord King David, 1 Kings 1.43, your Lord the king, in 1 Samuel 26, verse 15, quote, your Lord, the man on whom the Lord Yahweh has put the holy oil, 1 Samuel 26, verse 16. Another anointed king is styled, quote, your Lord Saul, 2 Samuel 2, verse 5. Jesus is the ultimate in the series of royal anointed persons. Quote, he is your Lord and do homage to him. Psalm 45, verse 11. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 42. He is born the Messiah Lord or Lord Messiah in Luke 2, 11. In this capacity, he belongs to Yahweh, who is his Lord God. Thus, Luke calls Jesus the Lord's, Yahweh's, anointed Messiah. Luke 2.26 There is also my Lord, King Agrippa. Acts 25, verse 26 Paul in Philippians has not for a moment abandoned faith in Messiah Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3.8 he clings to the Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase l, of Psalm 110, verse 1. He is in the service of our, or the Lord, Messiah. Romans 16, verse 18, Colossians 3, verse 24. Other superiors, like angels, can also be given the title of Lord, lowercase l, my Lord, you are the one who knows. Revelation 7, verse 14. Then there is their Lord, the King of Egypt. Genesis 40, verse 1. There's Hanun, their Lord. 2 Samuel 10, verse 3. Their Lord, Rehoboam, King of Judah. 1 Kings 12, verse 27. Jesus as Lord Messiah and distinct from the one God. The importance of Jesus' identity as the Lord Messiah, not the Lord God, is shown by the interesting way in which both Paul and Jesus discuss the unitary creed of Israel and then describe the relationship of Jesus to that one God. Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, presents Jesus, the Unitarian, in complete agreement with the Jewish scribe, and in verses 35 to 37, Jesus immediately goes on to define himself on the basis of Psalm 110, verse 1, as the human lowercase lord, Adoni, exalted to the position next to God. Paul rehearses the same Christian creed by stating first his Unitarian conviction, that for Christians, quote, there is one God, the Father, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, alluding to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, and adding that there is also one Lord Messiah, Jesus, compare John 17, 3. The Lord Jesus is the Messiah, not the Lord God. He is worthy of worship as the exalted 
Messiah. David had known this much earlier. He described the Messiah as your Lord, Psalm 45, verse 11, just as Jesus described himself as your Lord in Matthew 24, verse 42. David expected the Messiah to be worshipped, thanked, and blessed, even like Moses, to bear a divine title, quote, God, as in Psalm 45, verse 6. But no one imagined that calling Moses, Exodus 4, 16, or chapter 7, verse 1, or the judges of Israel, Psalm 82, verse 6, or the Messiah, God, Psalm 45, verse 6, meant that the Godhead had been enlarged. The notion that the Messiah was God is unthinkable. The divine title Adonai was readily available, but it's not used on the Messiah. After all, the Jews understood that there was only one person who was the supreme God. No one, therefore, could have imagined that the Messiah would be God himself. Though the Messiah could certainly, as God's agent and emissary, perform divine functions, he remained the human Messiah. The, quote, name of God was indeed invested in the Messiah as the angel of the Lord of the Hebrew Bible had acted as God's agent, quote, my name is in him, Exodus 23, verse 21. So, to an even higher degree, Jesus was given absolute authority to act for the one God, his Father. His position at the right hand of God made him worthy of homage and reverence as Messiah. Requests could be addressed to him, Acts 7, verse 59, and John chapter 14, verse 14, and songs sung to him. The honor paid to the risen Messiah simply shows us what is due to the first and so far only immortalized human being. The situation is brand new. A human being has been exalted and placed next to God. This does not, of course, mean he is God. He is Emmanuel, Matthew 1, verse 23, because God is at work in him and because God is thus with us in Christ. The individual's name, Ithiel, in Proverbs 30, verse 1, and Nehemiah 11, verse 7, were not understood to be God. Their name, meaning God is with me, like Immanuel, God is with us, signified the confidence that God was active in them. Psalm 110.1 speaks of the amazing position granted by God to his unique Son. God has chosen to execute his plan through his appointed human mediator, the Christian High Priest, whose ministry has superseded that of Melchizedek and the Levites. Bible commentators approach the issue of the son's identity with a presupposition which they read into the text. They set up their own definition of what must be involved in, quote, true humanity. They then declare that Jesus is outside these limits 
and must therefore be God. This method is flawed, firstly because it goes beyond the limits imposed by the unitary monotheism of the whole Bible, and secondly because it does not allow the position of supreme privilege and power which God has given to the first immortalized human being. He has been made far superior to any angel. He has inherited a position much greater than any other created being. The entire process is wrecked if we suppose that the Son was supreme by virtue of being God from eternity. Paul in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 attempts to undermine the unitary monotheism of Jesus appear often in commentary on a few passages from Paul's letters. Paul is alleged to have believed in a pre-existing son who left heaven and came to live a human life while not ceasing at any point to be fully God. A theory espoused by some Trinitarians is that the Son emptied himself, so to speak, of deity while on earth and resumed it at his ascension. This is known as the theory of kenosis or self-emptying based on Philippians 2. Other Trinitarians reject this theory and say that God remains unchanged so that the man Jesus was fully God. According to the Trinitarian idea, the baby Jesus, or even before that, the fetus Jesus, was as God upholding the universe. Philippians 2 verses 5 to 11 is appealed to in support of this so-called incarnation. The same concept is presented in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. However, Philippians 2 cannot possibly overthrow the accounts of the origin of the Son of God established by Matthew and Luke and elsewhere by Paul himself in Romans 1 verse 3 and Galatians 4 verse 4. Paul, in this celebrated passage, is urging Christians to follow the model of Jesus. It would be amazing if Paul advocates in this single passage belief in a second divine being from eternity who decides to be born as a human being. This is contrary to the whole Old Testament prediction of the Messiah as son of David, and it's hardly a realistic model for believers. Are they really being asked to imitate the behavior of an eternal person in heaven who decided to come to earth? Or is Paul urging us to follow the example of the historical human being, Jesus, who lived and preached and suffered in Israel and who was the Christian model of servanthood? Paul's letters were the first of the New Testament documents to be written. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John came later. If Paul subscribed to a view of Jesus as second member of the Trinity, why is this understanding so patently absent from the theology of the Gospels, written as testimonies to the Christian faith later than Paul's letters? Paul's subject in Philippians 2 is Messiah Jesus. 
verse 5. And by Messiah Jesus, Paul elsewhere means the man Messiah Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Jesus was indeed in the image of God, or the form of God, Philippians 2, verse 6. Form, that word, should not, as modern scholars recognize, be read as a Greek philosophical term. Rather, it is similar to the word image, and thus describes the visible man Jesus. Adam was created as the image of God, and Jesus is the second Adam, the image of God as man was intended to be. In 1 Corinthians, Paul sees man as, quote, the image and glory of God, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of, quote, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 as well as of, quote, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Paul knows only the historical Jesus later ascended to the right hand of the Father. He was indeed in the very image of God. Quote, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said in John 14, verse 9. Endowed with the very authority of God, being like God his Father, Jesus did not exploit his royal position, but acted as a servant, Philippians 2, 6-7. He adopted the role of a servant, did not abuse his messianic privilege, and was prepared to obey God to the point of surrendering his life in an ignominious, torturous death on the cross. Verse 8 of Philippians 2. Therefore God, quote, super-elevated him to a position second only to the one God and for the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. Paul ends his statement with a resounding Unitarian phrase, God the Father, Philippians 2, verse 11. The whole teaching of Paul here would be pointless if, in fact, Jesus merely returned to the status of deity which he had enjoyed by nature from eternity. Even at the culmination of his career, Jesus holds his exalted position, quote, to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, verse 11. God is still the equivalent of the Father, and this is one of scores of testimonies to biblical Unitarianism. The lesson Paul conveys here is about our imitation of the historical Messiah and sharing his mind and attitude. Enjoying the status of God as God's unique agent, Jesus did not consider such likeness to God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he took the role of servant and conducted his whole ministry in the service of human beings, even giving up his life for them. Jesus did not exploit his position for his own purposes. He behaved as a submitted servant of mankind and of the God who commissioned him 
to be the model of right relationship to God and man. The picture is very much a reflection of the temptation story in the Gospels when Jesus refused to use his status as Son of God to bypass the destiny of suffering which God had prepared for him. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 verses 15 to 19 is often read with Trinitarian spectacles and it's imagined, in contradiction to the rest of Scripture, that Jesus was the active agent in the Genesis creation. There are some 50 statements in Scripture defining God the Father as the creator of everything. And Isaiah 44 verse 24 shows that he was alone by himself as creator. Paul again describes Jesus as, quote, the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1 verse 15. Image implies visibility. We see God at work in Jesus. Paul's subject is the visible historical Jesus. He was, as Psalm 89 verse 27 predicted of the Messiah, God's firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's a quotation. Firstborn, verse 15, is thus a messianic title and implies that Jesus is head of the new creation which begins in him. Colossians 1 is all about reconciliation in Christ. Jesus is what, quote, wisdom, God's wise plan from the beginning, eventually became when Jesus was born. Paul's subject is not here the creation of the material world, but Christian transference into the kingdom of God's Son, verse 13. The, quote, heading up of all things, Ephesians 1.10, in the Messiah, who is head of the new creation. Paul is thinking of the plan of the ages, Ephesians 3 verse 11, in which Christ is to be ruler of all authorities. Firstborn, that title, is certainly not a title of deity. Paul calls Jesus son of his, that's God's love, Colossians 1.13 and immediately follows with the title Firstborn. Israel was also God's firstborn, Exodus 4, 22, and so was Ephraim, Jeremiah 31, verse 9. The Messiah is especially God's firstborn, Psalm 89, verse 27. In Jewish literature, contemporary with the New Testament, Israel is like a firstborn and only son. Psalms of Solomon 18, verse 4. In the book of Esdras, chapter 6, verse 58, Israel calls herself, quote, your people whom you call your firstborn, your only son. Beloved, that title, or uniquely begotten, firstborn, are all titles for the Messiah and describe him not as God, but a chosen human being. Colossians provides us with a description of that position of Jesus as Messiah and his destiny by appointment to head up God's marvelous program of reconciliation. 
Jesus is certainly the purpose of God's creation and at the right hand of the Father, he supervises the new creation. Paul in Colossians 1.13, the all-important context to Colossians 1.15-19, sets the stage for his discussion of Jesus' position at the right hand of God. He says that the Christians have been transferred into the kingdom of God. This has nothing to do with the Genesis creation, but focuses on the new creation in Christ. Jesus is certainly the first to be immortalized in that kingdom. As God's Messiah and firstborn of the new creation, all things are created in him. Verse 16. Moulton and Milligan suggest here a causal meaning, because of, as the right translation of the preposition in or in. The text does not read all things were created by him. Paul defines what he means by all things in this context, authorities, principalities, and powers, a hierarchy of rulers. Paul is not thinking here of the material universe as a whole, but of personal authorities. Jesus is supreme over them all as God's firstborn son, his, quote, uniquely begotten son, as John calls him in John 1.14 and verse 18, John 3, verses 16 and 18. Jesus, says Paul, is now supreme before all things, verse 17. The word before indicating, as it often does, supremacy of rank rather than priority in time. But it remains true that Jesus is chronologically prior to all others in the new creation. He is chronologically prior to the world in God's plan to grant him the inheritance of all things. He is the first to gain immortality by resurrection. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 18, where he describes Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. It was his resurrection from the dead which established him as supreme under God over the whole new creation and all authorities in it. Verse 18 is significant since Jesus' exaltation was in order that he might be in first position. This is meaningless if Paul believed that Jesus was during the whole process and from eternity God himself. Jesus acquired his unique status. If Paul refers at all to the cosmology of Genesis, he thinks of Jesus as the wisdom or wise plan of God. It was with the Messiah, Son of God, in mind that the creation was made. It was made in him, Colossians 1.16. And Christians were also in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4. It is as head of the new creation that Jesus attained his supreme position next to God. All authority, Matthew 28, 18, having been delegated to him for his work in that new creation. Translations mislead when they give the impression 
that Jesus was instrumental in the Genesis creation as active agent. This would contradict that plain statement of Isaiah 44:24, that the one God created all things unaccompanied. Who was with me? Jesus himself knew that the Lord God had formed man from the dust of the ground and referred to this event, attributing it to his father. God made them male and female, Mark 10, verse 6. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2, deliberately states that God did not operate or speak through a son in the Old Testament period. It was God, not Jesus, who rested on the seventh day after creation, Hebrews 4, verse 4. One has only to open the expositor's Greek commentary on Colossians 1.16 to read, I quote, This does not mean all things were created by him. The sense is in him, not by him. That's from Robertson Nichols' Expositor's Greek Commentary. The New Testament urges belief in Jesus as the Messiah, certainly not as God. Jesus is the Messianic Lord. This central truth is established as the foundation of the church, the rock belief. Peter declares Jesus to be, quote, Lord and Christ in Acts 2.36, and Paul makes the same confession when he states that belief of Christians is one Lord Jesus Messiah in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. The Messiah is the son of David and of God by supernatural generation in Mary. He is declared to be son in power by a mighty act of God resurrecting him from death. Romans 1 verse 4. No one imagines in the Bible that God dies. The quote, lamb who was slain, Revelation 5 verse 6 and 12 and Revelation 13 verse 8, However exalted his present position in association with the one God was still a mortal being, and therefore not God. God alone has immortality inherently, 1 Timothy 6.16. God therefore cannot die. Charles Wesley can pen words of the hymn, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." From the hymn, and can it be that I should gain? But this is still contradictory and nonsense. The immortal cannot die. God cannot die. The Son of God did. The title Lord is used of an ordinary human boss. They told their Lord all that was done. Matthew 18.31. As we have seen throughout Paul's epistles, Jesus is, quote, our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. In Revelation 11 verse 8, Jesus is still, quote, their Lord who was crucified. God, the immortal one God of Israel, was never crucified. The theology of the Bible knows nothing of a mortal supreme God. Jesus is, quote, the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. Revelation 2, verse 8. Quote, the beginning 
of the creation of God, Revelation 3 verse 14, which as we remember from the Bible dictionary means that, quote, he himself was part of the creation. Quotation was from the dictionary of the Apostolic Church. He is the supreme head of the new creation of immortal human beings, the second Adam, and strict monotheism is jealously guarded, provided we stay within the bounds of the New Testament canon, not until the Greek influence through the early church fathers began to call for a theology based on Greek cosmological models involving a second god, only then did unitary monotheism suffer a deadly blow.